This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of the Socialism 2022 program. You can hear more recorded sessions from the conference by subscribing to the Socialism Conference podcast feed. Many video recordings are also available at socialismconference.org. If you enjoy these recordings, keep an eye on socialismconference.org for updates about the next Socialism Conference and how you can participate. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. If you really want to help us out, rate and review the podcast on Apple or whatever platform you're listening on. So, yeah, so the, the panel is organized in part um, for us to talk about our Versa books, and mine is the oldest of those. Um, it came out in 2019, uh, co-authored with Alyssa Battistotti, Danielle Donna-Cohen, Theoria Francos, and a lot has changed since then. So we wrote it in the immediate aftermath, very quickly, uh, after the Green New Deal sort of first hit headlines, uh, went mainstream and became something that uh, us, our little circle of weird freaks, uh, we're not the only people talking about anymore. Uh, Sunrise, as many of you might know, the Sunrise Movement held a sit-in at Nancy Pelosi's office, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez joined in her second day on the job, I believe. So obviously a lot has changed since then, uh, but the basic point of our book I would argue this political vision of a Green New Deal that we lay out, thinking of the Green New Deal as sort of a grounds for contestation, not one thing, something which is continually sort of defined and redefined. Uh, I think our version of that still basically holds. So what we argue is that in order to accomplish this awe-inspiring task of decarbonizing the global economy, uh, there needs to be a massive state-led project to wind down the fossil fuel economy as we scale up the clean energy economy. And in doing so, uh, that project should deliver concrete material advantages to people that will whet their appetites for the state to go even farther in driving forward that transition and to build the democratic majorities needed to crush the massive opposition that will arise to that from various arms of capital, but most notably the fossil fuel industry. So what the umbrella of the Green New Deal and Green New Deal adjacent climate organizing have done and been most successful at in the time since we wrote this book, I would argue, uh, is in shifting the zeitgeist from among sort of elite policymaking circles, uh, from one focused primarily on carbon pricing, right? This idea that uh, climate change is this market failure that needs to be corrected by giving the market better data about how much pollution costs. And that in doing so, uh, the market will sort itself out, correct these problems, and put us on the path toward a decarbonized, wonderful, rosy world uh, in which everything is okay. Um, so that has shifted toward a focus on investment, in part uh, thanks to arguments made by uh, people asking for much larger sorts of investment, uh, like uh, Socialist Green New Deal, any of Socialist Green New Deal, or even something like Bernie Sanders' climate plan, which uh, mirrored many elements of that, $16.3 trillion, I believe, if I haven't forgotten that figure. Um, and what that sort of has distilled down to for uh, folks in Washington is a basic belief that the state can play a slightly bigger role than just correcting market failures, 
uh, and that reducing emissions should probably try to improve things somewhat uh, and not just sort of tax working people uh, in the process. So basically the Green New Deal won part of the debate, but none of the hegemony, right? And so the Inflation Reduction Act that just passed, which I have the unfortunate uh, job of having to pay very close attention to, through its many iterations of Build Back Better and you know, various things throughout the last two years, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act offers, I think, a pretty tidy summary of uh, two things. So one is this sort of common approach to climate policy uh, that is now, I would say, you know, if not hegemonic, maybe we don't want to use that word, but very widespread, at least among uh, elite policymakers in the United States and the European Union, uh, but also in big segments of capital, uh, which maybe we could get into in the discussion. Um, and two, I think it's a, a pretty good, tidy summary as well of the balance of forces in US politics. So what I'd like to spend uh, most of you know, the rest of these opening remarks talking about, and which we can dig into more in the discussion, is sort of what kind of terrain uh, this offers to organizers. Because I think it, it, it's worth understanding this is a very big shift in the, the sorts of things that we need to do uh, if you know, the basic project, again, is not so dissimilar than it was three years ago, right? That we need a state-led transformation of the global economy that cultivates democratic majorities to legitimate that project against absolutely massive opposition. So how do we do that now in a context in which the Inflation Reduction Act is the law of the land as organizers principally rooted in the United States? Uh, so I really just want to you know, give a little bit of context for what that act is, sort of where it comes from, uh, and then we can get into some of these maybe more exciting organizing challenges in the rest of the, the rest of the discussion. So to start off, it's worth saying this bill would not have happened. There would not be climate policy on the books in the United States if it were not for the climate movement in the last several years, and arguably, yeah, uh, <laughs> and arguably the social movements uh, the last 10 years which have influenced that. So I'm thinking most, uh, most immediately of indigenous-led fights against fossil fuel infrastructure, uh, which have helped to you know, not only sort of change what we think of as constituting climate politics, right, as these being fights about sovereignty, about territory, about uh, you know, anti-corporate struggles uh, have really sort of transformed the way that even you know, white-led mainstream climate groups think about, think about this problem. Right, and that you know, I think you can't understand the sort of fight for a Green New Deal without also thinking about movements like Occupy Wall Street, like the movement for Black Lives, which have shaped the sort of generation of organizers who have been thinking through climate questions in the last several years. Um, so I think you know, there's been a sort of accumulation of movement activity, which is responsible for getting climate policy on the books. It's obviously very flawed climate policy, uh, but I think you know. Maybe controversially, I think it's good that something passed. Um, and you know, I've written some version of this before, but you know, insofar as there is something that can be called a climate movement, right? That's a big umbrella, including a lot of different types of work and people who you know do not identify as climate organizers per se, but are doing very relevant work. Insofar as there is something called a climate movement, the Inflation Reduction Act is a product of its success and a massive 
betrayal. So it includes, the bill itself includes uh, several very fossil fuel friendly provisions uh, and the wider deal to get the, get the bill uh, was premised on uh, support for a permitting reform act, which is coming up very soon, uh, the draft of which was written by the American Petroleum Institute. <laughs> so that's the sort of cost of getting, getting this. But there are also, uh, I think, sort of important things to point out about the good stuff in the bill, right? These clean energy provisions, this $370 billion to be rolled out over 10 years, most of which is in the form of tax credits. Uh, and in this, you can see the fingerprints of who's gotten to shape this you know, new, somewhat state-friendly, investment-led approach to climate policy that, again, more progressive elements within the climate movement have helped to make possible, and that is, I think, an improvement over the sort of pricing fixation from years ago. So the Inflation Reduction Act basically envisions every element of an energy transition as on some path toward profitability. And so that can mean one of two things. The first, influenced mainly by big tech. Uh, Bill Gates played an instrumental role in sort of talking to politicians about what uh, climate policy should look like and uh, in passing the, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act at all. So uh, one kind of uh, piece of these technologies, right, of, of the energy transition in the sort of uh, thinking behind the IRA is that these can be innovative new technologies, right? Things that need some level of state support in the form of research and development, uh, maybe demonstration projects, maybe even the state becoming a guaranteed buyer of these technologies, uh, that all of these sorts of state supports can help to attract enough investor interest to make these technologies commercially viable, and that they will be eventually because they're so self-evidently useful to the planet that why wouldn't the private sector flock to them if it gets enough of a helping hand, right? So that's sort of one segment. The other are more uh, already sort of viable technologies or those that, you know, are, are basically sort of ready, ready for prime time. So things like wind, solar, electric vehicles, technology we have that exists in some form, um, but that the state needs to intervene to lower the barrier to entry, right? To make these more sort of profitable return generating assets, which big, uh, big, big investors can feel comfortable, you know, uh, investing in on something like the bond market, for instance. And here you can see the influence of asset managers like BlackRock or Vanguard or State Street, who now control roughly 20% of the average S&P 500 company. There are a number of BlackRock alums in the Biden administration, Brian Deese, uh, who is maybe one of the most influential uh, voices shaping climate policy in the White House, uh, worked as their uh, head of sustainable investment, I believe, for a number of years. Um, and the thinking here is basically that clean energy can be a really valuable source of returns as it scales up, but only if the state makes it worth their while. So what ties these two things together is that the state should shoulder the risks of an energy transition and the private sector should get to reap the rewards. Uh, there are also, I think, just plenty of elements that may be obvious to many of us in this room uh, that won't be profitable. Many parts of the energy transition will never make money and will be very bad places for investors to park their cash. So things like carbon capture and storage or nuclear technology, we can have debates about their role in the energy transition, 
um, but are not very profitable and may not be for some time to come. As the pandemic and rampant vaccine apartheid have also made clear, there are plenty of things that can be profitable, but probably shouldn't be. That is so worrying, you know, it's worrying that a goal of the Inflation Reduction Act seems to be for US companies to develop and patent life-saving technologies and then charge rent for them as they export them around the world, right? And so that is a very sort of worrying trend that the Inflation Reduction Act really sort of doubles down on. Um, but now I get to talk about something kind of hopeful, um, which is rare for me as a climate reporter. Uh, I spend 90% of my time reading really depressing stuff. Um, I think the most promising aspect of the bill, and I think the most sort of potent ground for organizing, is, uh, the, is, is the inclusion, newly, of uh, public power institutions in clean energy tax credits. This sounds very boring and is actually very exciting. Um, so if you'll bear with me for just a second. Uh, so the clean energy tax credits in the IRA that it expands have been a sort of long-standing part of the US tax system that public power providers, because they don't have tax liability, were excluded from. So for electric cooperatives, municipal utilities, uh, they have not been able to take advantage of these tax credits, and it's been a massive disincentive against building publicly owned renewables. Uh, and so the IRA changes that, right? Now uh, they can subsidize up to a third of the cost of new developments from wind solar uh, with a basically unlimited pool of funds to help spur on the development of a fully publicly owned renewable energy system, right? This is enormously exciting, and that money does not have a cap on it for the next 10 years. Uh, and so this, I think, is a huge opportunity. Uh, and with this more little playing field, there are endless fights to be had making the case that the profit motive doesn't have a place in our energy system, right? <laughs> so just one example of what that might look like, which I spent uh, some time talking to people about this week, uh, is organizing member owners, for instance, of rural electric cooperatives which serve 92% of persistent poverty counties in the US to get their utilities to tap public funds to shut down coal plants and build utility-scale solar farms that are staffed by union workers, including from those same coal plants are shutting down. Uh, this is work that can happen over the next 10 years that people are already thinking about and working on, including the people who helped win you know, these public power provisions that are in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, so, you know, I'll close out, I think I'm well over time right now, uh, just to say there's a lot of money going out the door in the next 10 years. Uh, we, you know, are going to find out what that looks like in uh, the next couple of months. But the battle now is not to shape whether a transition is happening, but how fast it happens and who benefits from it. Thank you so much, Kate. And next we'll hear from Matt. Thanks, Anne, uh, and thanks to Verso for organizing this. Um, first, uh, I feel compelled to say that this book that just came out, um, Climate Change's Class War, I think it was inspired most by two people, Karl Marx and Barbara Ehrenreich, who um, many of you probably know passed away a few days ago. So rest in power, Barbara, um, and it's really, if you've read, if you've looked at my book, the professional managerial class essay is a huge sort of um, inspiration behind it. But I just want to remind everyone about her wider work of making visible 
the just overall indignity of working class life under capitalism and her conviction that really only socialism could end that um, indignity, bring dignified lives to everyone. And I think we should all think of that. We should think of her this weekend at this weird socialism at a fancy hotel thing because, <laughs> because it's the workers Barbara focused on who are here keeping this place running and making it possible for us to have these conversations. So uh, now to the talk I wanted to give. <laughs> so um, if we're being honest, socialists have not had a ton to be excited about in the last couple years. But one notable exception might have been 15 months ago, and I feel almost bad bringing it up because what happened later. Um, but there was this fleeting exuberance with the primary victory of India Walton in Buffalo. And in her victory speech, you may have remembered this, she said, all that we are doing in this moment is claiming what is rightfully ours. We are the workers. We do the work. And in that statement, Walton articulated really the beating heart of socialist politics. The workers do the work, and it's the workers who have the leverage to change the world. So today, I want to make maybe a somewhat polemical argument that the eco-socialist movement could do a much better job in centering the knowledge and aspirations of the workers in the systems that we really need to transform. Now, winning climate action, as Kate just explained, is really going to take a mass majoritarian working class movement that brings in workers from all over, from teachers to nurses to construction workers. But I think socialists also need a much more targeted and focused strategy grounded in the labor movement. Mm -hmm. And for climate change, it's clear that decarbonization really hinges on one, how we transform one sector particularly, and that's electricity. All pathways to uh, zero emissions start by creating a zero emission electricity sector and then electrifying other parts of the energy system. But socialists should be excited when they hear that this very sector sports some of the highest unionization rates in the entire country. So electric power generation, transmission, and distribution is 20% unionized, which is kind of pathetic on a global scale, but pretty good for the United States. Yeah. But some occupations are even higher. Electricians are 31% union, uh, unionized. Electrical power line installers and repairers are about 40%. Now, it should be obvious that these workers not only have the strategic capacity to transform electricity at the point of production, they also have just deep skills and knowledge of this very system. Yeah. And electricity is an industry. It's a system sorry, of production, right? That's very complicated, actually. <laughs> really, did you know you have to balance supply and demand of electricity at all times? Hmm. Insane. Anyway, <laughs> what I want to highlight is that I think there's a concerning absence of these workers in many socialist electricity campaigns for public power. So the flaw in these campaigns, I think, is somewhat coalitional. They often typically involve, as we all know, volunteer DSA activists, which props to all of us that do that work, but also green NGOs, green environmental organizations. So this, these coalitions often are not coalitions rooted in the workers who do the work, right? So a couple of examples. You might recall first, um, DSA electeds, Jamal Bowman and Corey Bush introduced 
a really celebrated and amazing public power resolution to the U.S. Congress. And the resolution itself is filled with incredible socialist rhetoric and important principles. For example, quote, the United States must establish electricity as a basic human right in a public good and eradicate the reliance on monopolized, profit-driven utility corporations. So that's awesome. Yeah. But when you look at the list of organizations that sponsored this resolution, it includes names like the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, the Center for Biological Diversity. It's basically all environmental NGOs and community NGOs. There's one union in a list of over 40 orgs, and it's, it's uh, the Union of Electrical and Irrigation and Industry Workers in Puerto Rico, which is actually an amazing radical union, but it's kind of unaffiliated with other uh, union federations. The resolution was introduced in June 2021 uh, and made a big splash, but not much has come from it, right? Second, um, the Public Power New York Coalition is really doing amazing organizing, trying to pass the Build Public Renewables Act. And it's a really smart idea that they have in this legislation to empower the largest state-level utility in the country, the New York Power Authority, which was a utility set up by Governor FDR in 1931 uh, to build to really empower them to have to have the ability to build out um, renewable energy all over the state. But again, this coalition at least started with largely DSA chapters and green NGOs like the Energy Democracy Alliance, the Alliance for a Green Economy, and um, these were the this is the coalition that kind of formed the legislation that has been you know modified along the way. But when we got to this legislative session that ended in June, you know, there were some unions in the electricity sector that actively opposed the legislation. Um, and But I will say that the coalition, because of the power, and anyone that went to the Green New Deal panel this morning learned about what New York DSA has been doing, how they've been building power in the legislature through electoral campaigns that they're winning, and that power forced the unions, the AFL-CIO New York, to have to talk to this coalition, and they, the unions wrote new language that moved the AFL-CIO from opposition to neutrality. So now the unions are saying they're neutral, they're not opposing, but they were opposing before. I just want to point out, though, that labor neutrality from the workers that are in the system, right, is not an ideal socialist strategy. And I would advocate that the workers and the unions really should have been in the coalition from the start, as opposed to really because of the amazing organizing being brought in via their power at this late after sort of a couple of years. And in July uh, of this year, the New York State Assembly had a hearing on the legislation that featured many NGO staffers and academics supporting the le legislation. But when the unions came to, to speak on the legislation at the hearing, all three of them opposed it, even if one of them mentioned the language being very good. So those are just two examples. What is to be done? Jane McAlevey argues the root of good organizing is listening to people, not talking at them, right? So when it comes to electricity politics, we might just want to stop and listen to what electricity unions are saying. First, if you talk to electricity workers and unions about public power, and this was brought up again in the panel this morning, the first concern they're going to bring up is that there are very serious differences in public sector labor law in this country that have repercussions for workers. 
Um, in many states, public uh, sector workers have disadvantage. In New York State, they, there's a, they're under something called the Taylor Law, and they, they, they don't have a right to strike. Right? And the unions brought up that NIPA, New York Power Authority, has actually been a bad bargainer for workers, and so they're very reluctant to want to expand the, this bad bargainer's power across the state. In Wisconsin, you might have remembered, Scott Walker came into power and he eviscerated the rights and power of public sector unions. This sent public, public utility workers fleeing the public power sector to private utilities because they realized that all their rights were being stripped from them because of the, these legal changes. So labor law really matters when you're doing a public power campaign. And so we in these coalitions have to have answers for that, for these workers. We have to be able to explain to them how we can overcome these barriers, right? Legally. Okay, second, workers and unions in this sector tend to have much more flexible and broader technological vision of what decarbonization looks like. Now, green NGOs typically have a pretty narrow vision of basically 100% renewable solar, wind, batteries, whereas the unions, and I think you listen to what the unions are saying, they're very clear, climate change is real, we have to address it, but they advocate a lot of different technologies that environmentalists can get squeamish about, like nuclear power, like expanding sort of experimental versions of hydrogen, that green hydrogen even, that could be uh, used as storage and things like this, and even a real boogeyman that people get really scared about, which is carbon capture, which if technology were to allow it, could keep you know very unionized, let's say, natural gas plants in function and keep those jobs for those workers. I will add that this more flexible, broad-based technological vision of decarbonization is actually what all the scientific climate models say we need to actually rapidly get to zero emissions because it's not easy to get there. So it's going to take more than solar and wind. Um, and we should be clear the unions have a very material interest here. They understand many of the technologies they promote are, in, like nuclear for instance, entail lots of good union jobs. So they want to protect their jobs. That's, that's fair. But I also want to add that these workers take intense pride in keeping the grid reliable and keeping the lights on. And when the power goes out, they're the ones on the front lines keeping it going. And I think they know better than a lot of activists, actually, what technical mix works to keep the grid reliable, to keep it going, and how to... And they often are frustrated with the short staffing that happens amongst the utility industry that um, makes the grid unstable, right? And that's sort of the struggles they have with their own bosses. Okay. I mentioned it before, but there's kind of a big rift, you may have heard, <laughs> between green NGOs and unions, and that's over nuclear power. Most electrical unions are going to say, we're, we believe in climate change, but we support nuclear power. And the Public Power New York, uh, it empowers NIPA to only build renewables. It does not allow them to build nuclear power. Last week in California, the local uh, IBEW workers in California were out in force, like, you know, hundreds, uh, tons of them out in the streets trying to promote keeping open a nuclear plant, Diablo Canyon, a zero emission nuclear plant. Um, and here's the tension, you know, it's green NGOs that wrote the legislation, or not, or wrote the plan to close Diablo Canyon. And you just don't see a lot of socialist climate organizers out there in the streets supporting these kinds of workers who are fighting to keep a nuclear plant open. Even though, from a decarbonization perspective, 
zero carbon. If they were to shut it down in California, they're going to build more gas plants, I promise you. Now, don't get me wrong, and I can already hear the response from many of you claiming that these unions are really not on the side of progressive climate action. They're business unions. They're aligned with fossil fuel industry. They're aligned with the fossil fuel status quo. But I think as socialists, right, we can't afford strategically to just write them off as problematic. If you do a sort of Jane McAlevey style power structure analysis, these unions, especially in New York State, like these unions are an immense power block that are just sitting there in the very sector that we need to transform. Also, they're the workers who do the work, which is sort of the theme of what I'm saying. So campaigns for climate action or public power should not just like consult them, but they should put them at the helm, at the center of these campaigns, at the start of these campaigns, and they should be really driving the demands and the goals of these campaigns. And this is actually, it might sound hypothetical, it's not actually rocket science. This has happened. We've seen unions and even the bad, big, bad building trade unions uh, have been at the center of Green New Deal legislation in the state of Maine. Uh, there's this incredible climate jobs uh, sort of perspective that puts unions at the center of organizing that, that really got off its feet in um, Cornell, New York, but has spread like wildfire across the country and really had an incredible legislative breakthrough in Illinois recently. So in my book, I suggest we might also consider electricity a strategic sector to organize in, as DSA has done for like education and healthcare. And we could even uh, employ this kind of rank-and-file rank strategy to build more democratic and fighting unions, because that's not what these unions are, let's be clear. Um, and actually, comrades in Austin DSA, there's a few of them, have been doing this kind of work, getting jobs in IDEW. In fact, in the panel this morning, I heard one of the, the members of the National Political Committee of DSA has actually just gotten uh, an apprenticeship to become an electrician in IDEW. So this is super exciting. I think actually engaging with these unions and trying to shape them from the inside is an incredibly important strategy. Okay, so our first priority, I think, is to just listen and learn from these workers. But I also think we have a case to make to them. Right now, the renewable energy industry is owned by Wall Street, as Kate was kind of talking about, and it's actually a quite anti-union industry that employs short-term, disposable, transient, and very hard-to-organize workers Lauren Gurley, the labor reporter, just had a report on solar workers. They're, it's dystopian. They're, they're serviced by temp agencies that are called people-ready. Like It's like the temp economy. It's insane. Um, so if electricity unions aren't themselves thinking strategically uh, long-term about how they're going to intervene politically in this energy transition, they their survival is at stake. They're going to be swept away by this Wall Street-powered green renewable capitalism, right? Uh, and that's already happening. You may have remembered uh, early in my talk, I reported the union density of electricity was 20%. Just a year ago, it was 25%. It's, it's like going, it's already happening. So they, if the unions aren't going to just be totally clueless, they need, to, they need to get on board with some sort of strategy to be part of this energy transition. Now, the Inflation Reduction Act, it has some good labor provisions. Um, uh, they're called prevailing wage standards, but I think the more stringent kind of union standards were pretty much scrapped. So if we want this green transition to be a union transition, we've got to fight. They've got to fight, and we've got to convince them that their fight is our fight. 
And so that's what I think the terrain of what we have ahead of us is. And thank you very much. Thank you so much, Matt. And now I'll turn it over to Drew. Thank you all for being here. There's very stiff competition right now, so I appreciate you being here. Um, so uh, for my piece, I want to start by talking about the broader ecological crisis, um, which I want to point out is a set of interlocking crises, which includes, among climate change, uh, biodiversity loss, uh, air and water pollution, zoonotic diseases, uh, eutrophication, many other crises that are all interlocking. And then I'll speak briefly about my book, Capital Socialism, and how we can imagine together what it means to overcome this broad ecological crisis, and in particular the material demands of overcoming this crisis. And then finally, I want to talk about strategy and draw from these kind of intellectual discussions and then also from my own experience in activism. And I think it's worth pointing out here that part of the fun of this session is going to be that me and Matt don't see eye to eye on everything. And I think this will be very useful, uh, hopefully, because I think there are there are important divisions on environmental strategies that might be reflected in this room as well. So I think this will be a good forum to talk about these, these uh, political problems. So I want to start by talking about air pollution, because it's under-discussed. Um, at the plenary yesterday, Ruthie Gilmore was talking about asthma, briefly, and about how kids were missing school because of bad air. And I want to remind people that 9 million people per year died of air pollution. That's enough to take three years off of global life expectancy. It is a horrifying problem um, that is not talked about a lot. Um, and of course, that is not an equal three years of everyone's life. Um, as with COVID, those who died of air pollution are more like most deemed disposable by capital, uh, the elderly, the sick, poor and working people, right? Uh, but most especially people living in the parts of the world that have won the race to the bottom and rate and uh, wages, right? We export our air pollution elsewhere. So air pollution is a form of class war, you know? And we also have heard about Jackson, Mississippi, and their drinking water. Um, and I also want to talk about mass extinction, uh, which is a part of the ecological crisis that is under discussed. Um, we are living in the sixth mass extinction in Earth's history. Uh, ours is only the second mass extinction of insects which I think is especially terrifying because insects normally survive anything. Um, and this affects, this is kind of bad on its own. It is bad on its own, but it affects us too. Food security is hard to imagine without pollinators. Um, so let's just go into this. The, these crises are interlocking and they're a result of capitalism. I don't think this is going to be an unpopular position here. Um, over half of all carbon emissions uh, and almost all of the deforestation of the Amazon have happened since 1990 when the world market finally took over the planet. Um, so what would it look like to overcome this ecological crisis? Um, so uh, Theoria Frankos has an interesting book, uh, Resource Radicals, uh, that talks about ecological divisions on the left in, in Ecuador. And I think it's interesting because it's a contested question. What does it mean to overcome the ecological crisis? We have different visions of what a post-ecological crisis world would be, even if these are only kind of partially worked out. Um, and in Thea's book, she talks about this sort of anti-extractivist left and this more you know, welfare state, you know, extraction to find the welfare state sort of left in these conflicts that really tore the left apart and led to the defeat of, uh, of the president, the left Oh, yeah. I forgot I could do that. <laughs> Sorry, people couldn't understand me. Um, so that just brings me to my book. 
Um, so with Hapert socialism, uh, we try and think about what it would mean to overcome the ecological crisis. And we make kind of a two-level argument. The first level argument is reviving this concept of scientific utopia, which is sort of an odd concept. It comes from this thinker named Otto Neurath, who lived in Red Vienna in the beginning of the 20th century. And Otto Neurath, he, he was involved in this very short-lived socialist society as part of the German Revolution. Uh, and he wanted to figure out how economic democracy could work. And he thought economic democracy is more than just organizing your workplace and like saying how I want my workplace to run. It's how we want the economy to run. Like, and, and it's not just uh, a matter of like finding some number that we can optimize to tell us what the economy should be, like profits. It's, it's like a value-based decision, right? Like we could have a Vienna with you know, maybe public transit or a Vienna with cars. You know, there's, these are two visions and they require different infrastructure, different building, different work. And it's, not some, it's something that has to be decided collectively about our city or about our society. So this is how this idea of scientific utopia emerges. We can describe multiple utopias that are rigorous, like a blueprint maybe is the better word, blueprint for the future. And we can debate about these blueprints. We can talk about them in detail. We can talk about the values and code in these blueprints. We can you know, make compromises. And then we can decide what we want at this broader scale in addition to organizing our workplaces. And so we, we apply this to the environmental crisis, right? So the second part of the book is our own particular scientific utopia of how to overcome the ecological crisis. And we basically talk about uh, an idea that may be familiar. We don't use this term in the book, but an idea that may be familiar to people here, the idea of degrowth, um, yeah. which might be familiar. Um, <laughs> yes, the idea of degrowth which uh, is that you know, growth is unsustainable on a finite planet. That's the slogan that people often hear. And that you have to decrease material throughput to have a sustainable society. So we have kind of an uh, oblique relationship to this idea in the book. But one, one idea, the way we kind of put this in is like, suppose we give everybody on Earth access to all the energy they need to live a good life, right? How much energy would that be? And how much energy could we do that would plausibly give everyone a good life without causing biosphere damage that's beyond what we think is plausible. Keeping in mind that these limits are all going to be socially contestable and would be a matter of public debate, but we, we just offer our own, our own take. And there's an argument for this 2,000 watt society, which is basically if we have the current energy consumption, we just like give everyone the same amount. Um, and this would involve massive cuts in energy use in, uh, among basically wealthy people and would involve massive scale-ups in, in the rest of the world. Um, and this is, I think, a really interesting way of thinking about this sort of material reality of, of how energy works, right? Like, you know, renewables also require stuff, it requires mining and extraction, it requires placement, right? There, it, and also there's practical problems um, of, of renewables. Um, fossil fuels, you can burn at any time. They're, they're basically a battery, right? You, you can just burn them. They're, they're, they're useful, right? And renewables have different properties, right? It, it stops and flows, is how Andreas Moms talks about it. You can have a stock of energy in fossil fuels. It's concentrated sunlight over one million years, right? Whereas we have sunlight that's concentrated over like you know, one minute. Right? That's, that's, a different, that's a different idea. Um, it has different properties. Um, and so we kind of work through in the book some of the implications of this, and we push for basically a reduction in consumption. We also push for reduction in meat consumption, right? Um, half of the Earth's surface is covered by. Oh, thank you, thank you. This is not always popular. Uh, <laughs> thank you. Oh, this is good. I'm just being yelled at for this position. Um, but um, yeah, so uh, 
of the Earth's agricultural land, at 40, which takes up 40% of the Earth's habitable surface. 80% is for animal agriculture. Uh, and even though it provides about 20% of the calories, most of those calories are going to the rich. That's it. Um, this is an irrational use of land, I think. Um, animals are not very efficient at producing food because they're meant to turn food into walking around and you know, doing things. They're not meant to turn it into meat. Um, that, that they, they, they don't like this. Um, <laughs> so um, so that's, that's the main argument of our book. Um, I'm kind of cognizant of time because we're over time. Okay, okay. <laughs> so there's a lot of other elements of this book. We, we talk about um, planning a lot in the book because we think that uh, one of the key arguments that we make is that um, there's a trade-off between um, in this environmental crisis. There, let, me, let me start again. At Harvard, where I work, there is a geoengineering research center. Geoengineering is the idea. There are many forms of geoengineering, but the idea that we can fly uh, a plane up to the stratosphere and spray some particles to artificially dim the sun and reduce incoming solar radiation, which will reduce temperatures. This is a very popular idea among uh, the ruling class right now. Um, it's very scary, I think, um, how close this is to happening. There's several people in the Biden administration who are pretty happy about solar geoengineering. It's taught at Harvard Kennedy School, which is the big public policy kind of throughput into administrations around the world. It is. It is coming, right? Like this is this is a this is going to be the grounds of contestation, I think, um, in the coming decades. Is is solar geoengineering? Um, is it's I just want that to be put out there, and the consequences of this are unknown. Um, it's basically simulating a permanent volcanic eruption uh, to dim the the light. Um, the only science we have is basically looking at previous volcanic eruptions, but there aren't too many of those. Um, so. We won't know what will happen uh, from geoengineering. Um, so an argument we make in the book is this: uh, we can either plan nature or we can plan the economy. We can either make climate safe for capital by basically transforming the climate so that we can continue to work at whatever pace of energy transition capital would like, or we can try and force capital to do what we want, or better yet, make a social society and plan that and avoid planning nature. And I think that this is a choice that will be made. It will be made one way or the other. Right now, it looks like we're going to be planning nature and living with the consequences. Um, but I think we can have, build the power to, to do something else. Um, so I'll just leave that theoretical argument aside. If you want more, the book is full of theoretical arguments. Uh, and it has science fiction at the end. It's a very weird book. I hope people will like it. It's also very short, which I think is a good property for a book. Um, so. No offense to Kit, whose long book is excellent. Um, <laughs> uh, so, okay, so let's move into strategy, okay? That's enough, that's enough thinking in the sky. Um, so let's think about the field of combat right now. Uh, the main environmental dynamic in this moment, in my view, is an intracapitalist struggle between green capital and fossil capital. Um, so I think the IRA is an expression of the struggle. It's also an expression of our struggles, right? Our struggles that have been realized there, but it's also uh, green capital has won itself millions of dollars in government support. It's won this de-risking, it's won this ability to get investment to like make its inroads. And fossil capital has also leveraged its own gains in the IRA. And the IRA is an expression of the struggle between these two capital forces, in addition to having inflections from our movement as well. Uh, it's a, an expression of societal conflict, in a sense. So what does this intracapital struggle mean for workers? Matt was starting to talk about it uh, a little bit, but 
the reality is that in many, but not all cases, fossil capital has a workplace condition set by a relatively robust labor movement. Um, so for example, oil workers are often unionized with high wages and excellent benefits. Um, and it's sort of a relic of a previous economy. Whereas the green sectors are aggressively unorganized. Factories are constantly being built in anti-union sunbelt states. Even under ideal conditions, green capital usually operates with short-term contracts. Matt was talking about this for installation, uh, rather than the long-term positions that are more common in fossil capital. Um, wind is a little bit better than solar, but it's not much better. Um, I work tangentially with the UAWD, Union Uniting All Workers for Democracy, the UAW's democratization campaign. And a major concern for auto workers is that automakers are switching to electric vehicles, but as a way to cut labor costs. I mean, they might be able to play you know, the green game, but you can make production more automated, you can move production to the south, you can move production to uh, cut labor costs. It's, it's, a, it's a really a way of doing class war. Um, you know, they're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. Um, so my impression also from talking to people in fossil capital jobs is that many people are willing to give up pay, right? They're willing to give up, make a sacrifice to change jobs. This is not universally true. This is an anecdote. But um, the, the thing that people are not willing to sacrifice is their union or their job security, right? That is, that is not something that people are willing to sacrifice. And this is a, this is a challenge for us, right? Um, so I think that part of the game is organizing green capital, right? So the UAW convention, we were fighting hard for electric vehicle organizing. Um, but the UAW leadership does not want to invest in electric vehicle organizing, which I agree with Matt, is suicidal. Um, this, is, this is an insane position. Um, but anyway, back to our organizing puzzle. Um, anyone who has done climate organizing knows how hard it is to get certain unions on board, particularly the building trades. Yeah. Matt was referencing yeah. this. Um, uh, he may not agree with me on this. Um, so on the surface, electrical workers, they seem like they would have a lot to gain from electrification. Now why wouldn't they back up electrification? So let's look at the power there. Building trades get their power from their sectoral solidarity, right? So the electrical workers are in practice usually, I guess not always, unwilling to break with, for example, pipe fitters, right? The pipe fitters who do natural gas lines. Yeah. Um, so at best, at least in my experience, we consider to win if the electrical workers do not denounce the green energy campaigns. Uh, uh, you know, if, they, if they're just neutral, that's great. Um, so that's, that's the reality where we are right now. I would love it if we could get make inroads, right? Like, I'd love it. We need to make this a more radical union space. We need to make it more green. We need to do this. But I think I want to express how challenging that is. It is the building trades have been conservative for a long time. Socialist yeah. organizers for generations have had trouble with them. Um, so I think I think we should do it. I agree with Matt. I think this is a good thing to work on, but I don't think we should underestimate how hard that would be. Yeah. I think a more promising avenue for organizing is in the world of social reproduction, meaning the ways in which you know society reproduces itself. Yeah. Um, so the transgender Marxism session yesterday, which was amazing. Um, so one of the speakers made a great point, which was, uh, thank you. <laughs> I didn't participate, but I'll take the credit. Uh, <laughs> uh, in the early days of COVID, um, teachers and parents shut down schools, right? Yeah. The only reason why we didn't have an even worse slaughter during COVID is because the parents and teachers shut down the schools. That was a shutdown. That was a social blackout. That was a complete shutdown of all capital, right, for that period. Um, not all capital, right? We still have the essential workers, right? But it was an incredible um, expression of, of power, um, an unusual expression. Um, fights over social reproduction and broad sense have also seen great success in Latin America. I'm thinking of the uh, new constitution in Chile, which yeah. was fought for by feminist activists among the broader coalition. 
Um, I don't think this is a coincidence. I think there are structural reasons in capital why this social reproduction is where the energy is. I think it's because we have this fractured production. We have this globalized production where uh, the social, uh, the, um, the service worker sector is taking over. All these things are hard to organize. But the places that are currently where the militancy are, teachers and nurses union, are where the centralization of social reproduction is happening. It's sort of the nexus, the, the, the crux point where these, these processes can be shut down. Um, I think there's a reason why the teachers are so militant, right? Where the Chicago teachers union feel that they can bargain for their common good, right? Where they argue that in their union contract, rather than just bargaining for wages and benefits, they're bargaining for like homeless services for their students. They, they can do this because they have the power to do this, and they have the organization to do this, and they have the radicalization to do this. I know that in my experience, the Boston Teachers Union are very excited to do bargaining for the common good for yeah. climate. Yeah. And I know that many other unions are interested too. Um, so I think, so my, my point here is that we don't necessarily need to think, we can, we can look at a broader map as well, right? I agree that we need to think about these electrical workers. But we can also look at the broader map of how capital operates and look for other weakness points. Because those points, I think, might be easier inroads for our climate organizing. Um, yeah, I'll stop there in the interest of time. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org.